you know, I always get introduced, you know, and after they talk about what I do, and I've worked with North Point with Andy, and we help churches around the country, I always get this feeling that I should be an expert. You know, I should really have this all figured out, or I should understand it. And whenever I think that I know more than I do, I start thinking about stories related to, to my life and my parenting. One story um, goes back to when I was in my 20s, and I had just been asked to go to a church. I had two children at the time. One was four and one was two, my son and my firstborn daughter. And I had just been invited to go to a, a big church in Merritt Island, Florida, and um, in view of a call. I don't know if Baptists still use the term in view of a call. What that means is you show up and you speak, then you walk off the platform and everyone in the church votes on whether or not they like you. And there's always about 10% that don't vote for you or a 5% that don't vote for you. The whole time you're working at the church, you never know who the 5% are. But you know they didn't want you to be there. And uh, the day I went in view of a call at First Baptist Merritt Island, we went out to a restaurant after they had voted on me to come. And I'm going to be the new married adult, single adult pastor, working with the families. And um, so we go to this restaurant, and I just remember this vividly. Um, I'm sitting at this table. I had no idea this was the restaurant all the First Baptist members went to. And... Um, and that I'm the new guy they've just hired. I'm sitting at a table with my two-year-old, my four-year-old, my wife. And all of a sudden, these people start coming in and speaking to me. And I'm surrounded. Just get this. I'm surrounded by all of these families looking at our family in the bubble of this restaurant, watching our behavior. And they've just hired me. So you kind of get the stress and the pressure here. Because I want my kids at this point to behave a certain way. Because I am the new leader in the church. And my daughter who, um, if you knew anything about my daughter, she even now is an artist and, um, at 24. But at two, she's using the little orange drink that we have on our table to make designs all over the table. And my wife is trying to get her to calm down, and, and, and I see that's not working. You know? And so I figure I need to take charge of the situation. And, um, and so I don't know why I said this. I don't know why I said what I said at that moment, but you got to remember, those of you who aren't parents yet will understand that there are certain things that your parents said that didn't work in your life, and one day you'll just reach into your toolbox and pull out the same thing because you heard it all your life, and you'll use it on your kids and think that it should work, and I don't know why I said this, but I looked at my, <laughs> this is so inappropriate, I looked at my two-year-old daughter, and I said, if you do that one more time, you're going to die. Well, she just looked me dead in the eye, and you've got to understand her personality, and she took her hand, looking at me dead in the eye, and she just knocked her drink over. <laughs> so I picked her up, and I am walking through this crowd of First Baptist people, and my daughter is screaming at the top of her lungs, Daddy, please don't kill me. Daddy, please don't kill me. And then she kissed me on the cheek and laid her head on my shoulder, and the whole audience went, oh. <laughs> the reason I tell you that is because in my life, when I look back at parenting as a young leader and as I look through the years and working with families, I just, I just wish someone had said some of the things that I'm going to say to you today. 
I wish there had been a Dr. Diana Garland who had come along when I was 20 and had taught me the principle that I'm going to kind of unpack for you because I think if you would understand this principle, not only would it change and affect the way you parent and the way you parent as a person in ministry, but it will also affect the way you see other parents and other families. And, and so I, I just have a few things I'm going to say here and, and see if this makes sense to you because along the way, I think we develop a picture of what we think the family should look like. We have a picture. Breakups tomorrow will break up because people had a picture of what they thought Valentine's Day would be like. And when it didn't happen, they're going to go for another picture. You enter into marriage, you enter into family with a picture of what you think it should look like and it should be like and it should feel like. I don't know where your pictures come from. They could come from, you know, watching sitcoms on television. They could come because someone took Deuteronomy 6 and unpacked it for you one day and you felt like this is what a biblical family looks like. They could come from um, your family and your experiences in your family. You could be reacting to what you didn't have in your family, and you've created a picture of what you think family should look like. Any of you in here engaged? Engaged to be married? Okay, you're engaged to be married. What's your name? Allison. Allison. See, here's the thing, Allison. This is what happens to us, and this is kind of premarital. We're just going to make sure everybody disappears in the room. We're going to have some premarital counseling for just a second. When you go into your marriage, you will walk into your marriage with a picture of what you think marriage should look like. And, And subconsciously, and we all do this, we think our job is to get our spouse to conform to the image of our picture, right? It's not, that, it's not that we think we're perfect and they aren't. We just think we're more perfect than they are. And that, and that our mission is to somehow move them toward our picture. And so we go along with, with this strategy of trying to get them to conform. Some of you married in the room? Any of you married in the room? Okay, you, you understand what I'm talking about. Because along the way, what happens when you can't get them to conform to the image of your picture Reality kicks in. And the distance between your expectation, your picture, and reality is the degree of disillusionment that you kind of have to deal with, you have to wrestle with. When, when, when I, you know, walked into my family and my marriage, I had a picture of what I thought family should look like and should be like. And, um, I mean, I, you know, I didn't have a lot of, you know, information. I just kind of felt like when my children were born... You know, that they would grow up in a home where we played Christian music and they used words like blessed and we had verses of scriptures on the wall and that's kind of what my family would look like. And I rode down, you know, the highway the other day and I saw this picture on a billboard and um, with a church, you know, that said, you know, we are a family friendly church. And, uh, and so, you know, I'm looking at this picture on a big billboard and I'm thinking, okay, if that's what the church is trying to say is the family we're going after, then what does that communicate? What does that say to me about the picture of what a family should be? Because in this church, they're trying to get every family to look a certain way, to be a certain way, to, to, to just by their definitions of what a family should live like and be like. And so I'm looking at this picture thinking, number one, I know this family. I mean, I do. I know this family. They're the Stock family. This is, this is like Mark Stock. Mary Stock, little Martha Stock, and little Jimmy Stock, okay? And, um, and the thing about a picture that's interesting, and you know this is true, the picture doesn't tell the story. The picture is just a snapshot in time. And these were actors put together that probably didn't even know each other. Or if they were a real family, there's a story going on behind this that we don't know. I mean, Mark Stock, 
for all I know, is a pharmaceutical rep. He's hooked on Ambien. I mean, you've got, you know, Martha stock. She's in debt up, up to her eyeballs. And you got little Jimmy, who's ADHD. And, and little Mary, you know, was caught pulling heads off Barbie dolls, so she's in therapy. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff going on here that we don't know. And, and sometimes we hold up a picture and we say, this is kind of the ideal and we hold on to what we think our picture for marriage or a picture for family should be look like, and we set ourselves up for disillusionment. That's why I say this. If you hold on to your pictures too tightly, oh, this is this is an interesting stat. Let me jump to that for a second. 23.5% of families in the United States are defined by married couples who live with their own biological children. This is an interesting stat. I mean, in other words, when you look at this picture and you look at the reality of what families are around you, most families can't live up to this, and this is what, what, not what they look like. And yet, when we hold on to our pictures too tightly, we set ourselves up to become disillusioned. In other words, what I'm saying is that most of the families I know don't look like this. The real families I interact with and I live with don't look like this. And I could go through a list of some of the people that I know that I'm kind of close to. These are the Brants. He used to work for Apple. He's in our IT department. Amazing man. He met Amy Years ago, after she had already had Jesse, went through an awful divorce. He married her. They had two other children. Great family. But the point is, if I held up this picture of them and said, this is the goal. The goal is to get you to become like this. They would go, well, we can't quite become that because our, our experiences didn't take us down that path. And so we can't, you know, live up to that picture. Or I, could, I would introduce you um, to... This, these friends of ours who run a restaurant down the road, this is Paul and Bavon. <clears throat> Paul is African-American. Uh, Bavon is Asian. They met, and I get this for some drama, when he was 18 and she was 14. And um, long story, they ended up having two children down the road, and I love their children's name. Their children's names are Tsunami and River. And um, that was funny. And um, somewhere along the way, I met them in a restaurant, and I got to know their story. We had these incredible conversations, and I could, you know, give you some insight into what their view is, but can you imagine me walking into them and going, okay, by the way, this is the goal, and this is what we're trying to help you become one day. They would go, I, I'm not sure I can ever be that. I would introduce you to this uh, young lady right now. Her name is Haley Smith. Actually, it's Haley Landers now. I just did her wedding about four or five months ago. Haley was born out of wedlock. She was raised by her grandfather in a church that had 50 people. And um, now she's devoted her life as a musician, unbelievable musician, um, going into inner cities and trying to lean into girls and say to girls in inner cities, God loves you unconditionally. But the point is, what would I, I held this up to, to Haley and said, oh, by the way, this is kind of the goal. This is kind of what we're trying to make happen in your life. And because this didn't happen... You know, you will never quite be what God wanted you to be. You just got to understand that. Or I would introduce you to this family I met in Haiti after the earthquake. The mother was killed. The father didn't have a picture of his family. He motioned for me to come over and shoot this. And we got into a conversation through a translator. I just, for some reason, don't think he would ever have a context for this ideal picture that I saw on the billboard riding down the road that day. Um, this is the Fincher family. Oh, this is the Brailsfords. They were riding down the road, got hit by a drunk driver. Now um, Corey is paralyzed. The point is, they're holding a picture somewhere in the back of their mind of what they thought family should be like and look like, and their picture didn't become reality. I'd introduce you to um, the Finchers. Great couple. They almost look like the Stock family. 
And what you don't know about them is when Holden, who's in the middle, was just one years old, Jace, who's up at the top corner, was a musician with a group called the Marvelous Three, and um, hit the top of the charts, went on Leno, went on Letterman. Christina was a pastor's daughter leading worship with our kids when she found out all kinds of stuff and addictions and things were happening in Jay's life. And in a hotel lobby up until midnight after he'd gotten off the Leno show, Jace knew that he had to make a decision to save his family. He walked away from his career as a musician to rebuild his family. So, I mean, the picture doesn't show that, does it? I mean, but there's a story going on behind here. And I was standing in the back of the room with, with Christina seven years later, watching Jace play bass on, on, the, on the stage and some other musicians play the bass after she'd had her, her last child, Cashman. And we're standing there looking at what was happening, and, and she leaned into me and she said, I'm so glad I gave up the picture of what I thought things had to become like. But she made a choice at some point in her life that she was either going to move toward that picture of what she needed or think in a different way about her family. Um, this is a picture of me and Donald Miller, not because we're in a relationship, don't be confused, um, but because Donald Miller represents... A guy who grew up, grew up with a single mom, and in his world and in his life, he has built this entire ministry idea around, in the Belmont Foundation, around putting men in the lives of boys who don't have men in their lives, and just, again, why? Because he didn't accept the fact that there's a picture that we all are going to ultimately buy into. Now, why do I say all this? Because I just think it's important that we kind of deal with our picture for a second of what we think family should be. And I know what some people say. You're right, you're right, you're right. What we really need to get back to is um, a picture of what the family looked like in the Bible because that's really, that's really much more theologically where we should be going anywhere. I mean, right? Isn't that what we should be doing? And I'm so glad for the Diana Garlands of the world who've championed this idea because truly, I mean, that's what we should get back to. So let's talk about what the perfect model of family looked like in the Bible for just a second, okay? I mean, there was, you know, Adam and Eve kind of all started there, Right? All the dysfunction in your life and my life and this tension that will exist in your marriage. I mean, all this goes right back to them. You know, perfect family whose one son killed another one. I mean, we could, it gets messy. Or we could go to this one, Noah. Great story, saved his family, built an ark. We forget the part where he got drunk and there's a whole other side to that. Um, yeah, Jacob and Esau. That's a good Bible story for children, right? Scheming mother. Naive father, sibling rivalry that lasted a lifetime. This is kind of our Bible story part of the session. Oh, the, the loving, warm brother story of J Joseph and, you know, his siblings. I mean, it's a great story here, right? Or what about this one? David kills Goliath. Powerful story of courage and God showing up in his power. But we skip the part sometimes about David and Bathsheba and... You know, his one son who raped the daughter. I mean, it just gets messy. As a matter of fact, I'm going to tell you something. When I read stories in the Bible, I feel better about my family. <laughs> oh, and then there is always Joseph and Jesus and the baby Jesus and Joseph and Mary and the baby Jesus. That's a sweet one. Except for that part where they left Jesus and forgot him for three days in the temple. 
I mean, I'm just telling you, if that story had existed today, family services would have taken him away. And I mean, honestly, I mean, what is the point here? The point is this. God doesn't use perfect pictures. He uses broken people. And I just, I just want to lean in for you for a second and just, just say this. And this is the only reason I came. Because I just wanted you to understand that sometimes we forget the essence of our theology is about this issue. That God is in the business, not of building bigger churches and making better picturesque families. You know, God's kind of in the business of using the family and using the church to demonstrate to a world that he's a God of redemption and a God of restoration. And we just forget this. You see, I have this sneaky suspicion that if I were to sit around the room and talk to some of you and we could do what I want to do where we sit at the table and you kind of dumped your baggage and I kind of dumped my baggage, I kind of have this you know, sneaky suspicion that you would disqualify me as a leader and I would disqualify you as a leader because we don't feel qualified. And it's not about us you know, being perfect. The interesting thing, and only God could have thought of, thought of this, that God decided to choose you and 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 put us together in a thing called the church even though we have our dysfunction and our brokenness and our sin and all the stuff in our life, because God wants to demonstrate to a world around us that he is who he says he is. And that one of the greatest messages of the church is show up here, hang out with us, because guess what? The only thing that makes us any different than you is the grace of God, and we want you to understand that we have understood this story of restoration and redemption that God has invited us to. The same principle is true of the family. That something fundamentally will change in the way you approach your family and the way you approach the family if you just step back for a second and say, you know what, it's not about a picture-perfect ideal that sometimes the books give us the list that we've got to live up to. No, no, no. It's about God using the family and God using the church that exists of broken people to demonstrate to a world who he is. That the real issue here is for us to think in a different way. That God's desire is to work through every family to demonstrate his story of restoration and redemption. And I kind of circle the word every. I'm telling you, that means when I sit down with Paul and Bavon, and they're not even married yet, they're living together. I'm trying to sort this out in their world. I'm trying to help them understand that God has a plan of restoration and redemption because so many times they've been in a church context where they didn't know how they fit in in their, in their, in their situation. And I'm trying to lean in. And should they get married? Yeah, they should get married. But at the end of the day, how am I going to help them transition to God's story and to understand that there's a story of restoration and redemption that he wants to tell? How am I going to help them understand that it's, it's bigger than just fixing this and you know, somehow living up to the standards that a church has. It's about God showing up in their world regardless of their baggage, regardless of their mess, regardless of their dysfunction, and beginning to write a story of restoration in their heart. I work with homeless people, or friends of mine who work with homeless people in the Atlanta Union Mission, and they tell me all the time that one of the biggest obstacles that some of the homeless people have is they will never feel like they're good enough to step back into church. Because again, we've emphasized the standard not the story of restoration and redemption. I mean, we wrote the book, Parenting Beyond Your Capacity. I had a senior pastor in Toronto, Canada, who's a great guy, write the book with me. And um, in the middle of the night one night, I, I just, because we're, we're two middle-aged white guys writing this book. And, it, and after I'd kind of read the book, the book's based, based on Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 6, and it's based on the idea that in Deuteronomy 6, um, maybe the real picture here for Deuteronomy 6 isn't that this 
is the family that existed in Deuteronomy 6. That there was so many other principles going on in Deuteronomy 6. And if you really unpack Deuteronomy 6, the Bible wasn't saying to a perfect family, this is how you transfer faith to your children. It was a communal you know, deal with relationships. There were more than just the two parents involved in the kids' relationships. And basically, what Moses leaned in and said to that culture that day was much bigger than just the family because he called all the leaders together. And I think he was saying to parents and to leaders collectively, you own the faith of the next generation. And how are you going to partner to do this? But I just, I just, you know, we're writing this book, and I'm thinking, we, we can only think of family in t- context of our context. What about all these other families who have a different context? And um, so I called up some single moms, and I said to these single moms, I want you to read through the manuscript, and I just want you to tell us, what, what do you think? And, 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 and how can we make sure that these principles are transferable to every family? Because I want every family to understand these principles and that every family understands that God really has a desire to tell his story of restoration and redemption through their lives regardless of what's happened. And so I get this long letter back from a single mom. I mean, she just writes this letter back and she just kind of dissects the book. I mean, she just tears it up. And so we go back to the drawing board. But in the middle of the night after I read her letter, I was trying to just write a statement down that would give us kind of a grounding point to come back to, to rewrite some passages and sections of the book so that she would understand it and so that other people who are wrestling with the context and family can understand it in different ways. And one of the things that she felt, one of the things that she felt as a single mom was that because she was not married and she didn't have a husband and because she had gone through a divorce, that she would never be good enough to be a parent. And that that put her in a context where she was set up for failure. And I don't even think that's necessarily um, unique to a single mom. I remember being the father of middle schoolers walking to a creative meeting for a large organization in our country who was trying to create a strategy for men you know, and for families, and they put this statement up on the board, and they, the statement they put on the creative board was fully equipped man of God, and that was kind of right out of the New Testament. And they said, our goal should be get, to get every father in our country to become a fully equipped man of God. Well, I'm looking at that statement, and I'm getting frustrated because I'm thinking, my kids are in middle school, and by the time I become a fully equipped man of God, it's going to be too late. And the other thought that I had that day sitting in the room is, I don't ever remember my wife using my name and fully equipped man of God in the same sentence. (laughs) I mean, isn't it true that sometimes you feel like you're you're not qualified to do this as a parent? Sure it is. Isn't it true that people around us don't feel like they're qualified to do this? Sure it is. Maybe it's not about you becoming a perfect parent. Maybe it's something... Greater. And so I wrote this one, this one sentence just to, to lean into her that day. God is at work telling a story of restoration and redemption through your family. Never buy into the myth that you need to become the right kind of parent before God can use you in your children's lives. Instead, learn to cooperate with whatever God desires to do in your heart today so your children will have a front row seat to the grace and goodness of God. See, I think that's what it's about. And, and, and this is kind of the, the last point I just kind of want to make here. Why? Because families don't need a better picture. They need a bigger story. The point I want to make is for your family, in your own family, you take the better picture approach and you will set your children and you will set your wives and you will set your husbands and you will set yourself even as a husband or wife up for disillusionment. 
and discouragement. This mindset can paralyze the way we lead our families and the way we do family if we're not careful. But you invite your children and you invite your wife and you invite your husband, you invite your family into a mindset that says it's about a story that God continues to tell regardless of what happens, regardless of what surprises along the way catch us off guard, regardless of those things. If you, if you set them up for a mindset that looks not only at your family but at every family around them as a part of a story that God wants to tell of his restoration and redemption, something different happens. At that point, you're inviting them into something where there's hope. Not something where there's discouragement. I talk to leaders all the time that just discouraged because they can't get families to live up to their pictures. There's a friend of ours on staff um, who asked me to do something a few months ago that I really, or actually several months ago now, that I had never really done before. We've always had baby dedications in our um, church, you know, where you either parade the babies up on the platform or we have it. We actually have a special designed environment where all the families come with their relatives and we do this special baby dedication. But Kristen and Matt, um, a couple on our staff, had had a son named Sawyer. And, um, and, and, and their story is kind of a unique story. I mean, they're... You know, Kristen's parents got divorced when she was young in middle school, high school years. And, um, and so when, when I was there at their wedding, and, you know, it's one of those weddings where you've got the exes showing up. And it's just kind of, it's kind of a little different, you know. And you're trying to make sure people sit at the right tables, get in the right places. And there's this tension that's just there because, you know, they're, they've been in this relationship for a while. And in and, um, and, and different worlds, and they come back together and... And so we're getting ready to, to have a baby dedication. She said, I don't think I want to do the baby dedication at church because her dad had not really come to church much. He had left the church, you know, years and years ago. And she said, would you do a personal, private baby dedication, you know, at the condo? It's kind of where we have some meetings, but it's kind of a nice setting. And I said, sure. And so I'm thinking, that's, that's great. And then as, as the day approaches for the baby dedication, I'm starting to work through the actual, you know, setting and what's going to happen in the room. And I'm thinking, this is going to be awkward. Because you got, you know, her mom and her mother's husband who used to be her dad's boss. And now her dad, and they've been divorced, and her dad's been through another divorce. And, and his dad, her dad's not really that on to church stuff. And, and we're going to try to talk about spiritual. I'm, I'm just trying to work it out in my mind. I'm just thinking this, this could be kind of an awkward scenario. And people start showing up. And honestly, I mean, I'm, I'm getting nervous. And, um, and so I'm trying to lighten, you know, the mood of the room. And so I asked the parents, oh, and to make it even, even more you know, difficult, and this, we were talking about this earlier about technology, um, Matt's parents, who actually live here in Texas, were video chat, in, chatted in. Her dad was video chatted, his dad was video chatted in. So we got the video chat sitting there too. This is just what can, you can do in modern day baby dedication. So anyway, you know, to lighten the load, I say, well, why don't you just all tell a funny story about Matt and Kristen so we can just kind of go back to that generation of parenting, talk about them growing up. And, and then we get to this moment where I'm just trying to create this moment. I'm trying to go, okay, now, what is it? What is it that you really hope will happen in Sawyer's life? What is it you pray for? What is it you wish for? Let's just go around the room and let's, let's talk about that for a second. And there was this awkward moment of silence, you know, where who's going to speak up first? And Kristen's dad 
raised his hand and he said, oh, I'll say something. And for the next few minutes, this father who had not really said an awful lot about spirituality, who had not really said an awful lot about God for years, um, talked about how he hoped and he prayed that Sawyer would figure out who God was and figure out who he was faster than he was able to. It was almost like you got the sense that he was confessing and admitting something that for years no one had talked about in the room. And it was emotional. I mean, I'm looking around the room and I'm seeing people get emotional and it just created this amazing moment that started off with this grandfather who had been out of church for years. And after it's over, you know, I'm running to the place where there's barbecue, you know, because I'm trying to, you know, kind of get away from the crowd for a second because it was just, and, and, and he kind of follows me over there, Billy is his name. And Bill and I have had some experiences where we've talked through things together, so we're comfortable enough to talk about some issues. He walked over to the table and he said, I need to ask you a question. Um, tell me real quick, what is it that you guys do? And I, and I just kind of explained to him, because his kids work for us, that you know, we kind of help families understand there's a bigger story. And he says, he says, you know what? He said, that's what I think I felt today. He said, what I think I felt for the first time today is it relates to my family, is there's a story that's continuing on and I can still be a part of that story. He said, what I've never really told anybody is what happened when Cindy left me several years ago, 15 years ago. He said, we went to church every Sunday. We sat as a family in the same spot every Sunday. And when she left and my family unraveled, I went back to church the following Sunday. And I sat, it was a Thanksgiving weekend, he said, I sat right in the same place that we'd always been sitting without my family there. He said, I was basically holding the pieces of a broken picture. And he said, the pastor got up and the pastor began to explain about family and everything the pastor was explaining and everything the pastor was talking about, I knew I could never get to again. And he said, I walked away from church that week and he said, I've never been back. Because I didn't know how I could live up to the picture. But if you're saying it's a story that I can re-engage in, it's a story of restoration and redemption, that there's still a part and a role I can play I'm in. All I'm, all I'm wondering is how many times people show up in our churches and they're holding their broken pieces of pictures that they're not really sure how they fit in. And I see it all the time. I see it in people in ministry all the time. I have a student pastor came up to me a month ago in Indianapolis. And he said, my wife was killed four months ago in an automobile accident, we were hit by a drunk driver, and I've got two daughters. And he said, I don't know how to parent them anymore because every time I look at them, I see my wife. And this isn't the picture of what ministry was supposed to be like for me. A children's pastor in Knoxville or outside of Nashville, Tennessee, husband walked away last December in the middle of their Christmas season after 20 years of marriage. And she calls up and she says, that's not the way the picture was supposed to be. That's not the way it was supposed to work out. The mother who came up to me, you know, after student camp, when, when, and she said, she said, you know what, based on what you said, I've got to go back home and I've got to have a meeting with my family and I've got to let them off the hook. I said, let them off the hook from what? 
She said, I've been trying to get my family to live up to my pictures for 15 years. Because we're just programmed that way. And I can't count how many college students have come up to me and they've said, thanks for telling me it's a story, not a picture. Because I had this myth that I had bought into that maybe I would never be able to be everything I dreamed and, and that I thought I wanted to be for God because of my family baggage and because of what happened in my family experiences. And if it's a story, not a picture, that has a whole different context. All I'm saying is we either lead into this generation and speak to the family and speak to the people around us from the vantage point of there's a picture you need to live up to, or we lead from a vantage point of there's a story that connects to the very gospel where there was a cross 2,000 years ago of restoration and redemption that everyone, regardless of who you are, can be a part of. And it's just two different approaches. I don't know your story. I don't know your marriages. I don't know the families you're connected to. But my prayer is that you'll just continue to have dialogues to figure out how you're inviting them into a story of restoration and redemption and give them hope. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for every son, for every daughter in this room who has to admit when they look back at their family they didn't have perfect parents, they didn't grow up in a perfect family. It wasn't the picture that somehow society, culture, or the church has handed us. But they would remember it's not about the picture anyway. It's not about anything other than you using their family, regardless of the situations that happen in their world, as a platform to show them your, your, your grace and show them your story of restoration and redemption and to leverage them to show a world around them that same story. And God, I pray for every husband, for every wife, for every pastor in this room that will be in ministry, that, that God, they'll be careful not to put a bubble around their family and a bubble around their kids to create an expectation for themselves or to let others create an expectation that they need to live up to. But they'll invite their families and the families around them and the families inside and outside their church into a story that you want to tell, that you desire to tell, a restoration and redemption in Jesus' name.